0: Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey have many miles behind you. We're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit ProperSense.com.
1: Welcome back to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. Today I'm joined with one of my co founders. Nick, thanks for coming to work today. Uh, our other co-founder, Eric, I heard is on a boat somewhere in northern Arizona.
0: Must be nice. I'm sitting here grinding in Camas, Washington, but I would not want to be anywhere else than with my buddy and
1: co-founder, Keith Stoffer. What's up, Keith? You know, same thing, sitting here, grinding it out. Somebody's got to keep the wheels turning around here. Interesting uh, for all the listeners out there. Uh, Nick lives in Camus, and I live in a, a border city of Vancouver, but I'm looking to purchase and build a home next door to him, not next door, but in the same city anyway. So then we'll we'll be real close together,
0: yeah, so just a backstory on Camus. I actually moved here a year and a half ago, and I lived in 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 Vancouver before that, which again is the border town that Keith is talking about and And I always had this feeling that Camus was this um. Finnish city that a lot of families had moved here. It's a, it's a pretty good place to live. The schools are great. But when you move out here, there's actually a lot of land that has not been touched. So it's it still very much is an emerging place to be, which I don't know if you knew that, Keith, but I was under the impression that it was this crowded Finnish product, and it's really not.
1: Well, my family has been in southwest Washington for going on six years now. And we landed in vancouver not really knowing the area and over the time yes we have learned that camas if we're going to be here is the place that we want to be and exactly for the reasons nick that you're talking about that we want to have some land build a home kind of that homesteady type life and you just can't find that here in vancouver and it's been difficult in camas because Uh, you know, they're not making any more land and it is getting eaten up. We feel like we've found a piece at a good deal and feel like this could actually be more than just a home, but a good investment. So, uh, here's crossing your fingers.
0: Well, I, I hope your yard game is tight because if you're going to build on multiple acres, you're going to be out there just grinding away.
1: Dude, my yard game is tight. I'm on an acre now and I got, uh, I got yard stripes like you wouldn't believe, so.
0: How much time do you spend mowing your lawn or manicuring your lawn?
1: So I've got a little bit of help. In fact, he's out here uh, now helping me out with some of the shrubbery and things like that. The only thing, I outsource most of it, honestly, to include the fertilizing and things like that. But the only thing, when I first moved here, I bought myself one of those John Deere tractors. And it's the one thing I can't bring myself uh, to outsource and pay to have someone do because I'm perfectly capable of doing it. I have the equipment to do it uh, and I also have the time. And so part of me just feels kind of a responsibility as a young man to get out there and mow my own damn lawn.
0: <laughs> well, and it's a rider too. So it's not like you're out there manually pushing a mower over multiple acres. So yeah, yeah, that's good on you. There's a sense of pride. Like after you finish mowing a lawn and the smell and the sun's out. It's just very, it's very nostalgic. It brings me back to when I was a kid, because my parents lived on an acre, and I and 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 that was my job as a as a young boy.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Plus the uh, the tractor has got a cup holder for my beer, and uh, I got music in my ears, and I get away from the the screaming kids for a little while. So it's actually it's okay.
0: Yes, I've I found that we'll do anything to get away from our family for a few hours.
1: <laughs> That's right. And if we can disguise it as work. Uh, it goes over a little better with the uh, significant other. So anyway, Nick, let's jump in here. All right, guys, you've heard us talk about the importance of a monthly budget. But what about the unforeseen? Today, we're going to talk about your emergency fund and why having one can turn a financial catastrophe into a simple inconvenience. All right, Nick, let's let's start macro here. Mm -hmm. Tell us what an emergency fund is and how is it different than what we've talked about in the past, uh, that is your personal budget.
0: The best way for me to describe what an emergency fund is, is a pot of money that is not allocated or not earmarked for anything in particular. It's for when the shit hits the fan and you have an unforeseen expense and instead of dipping into your investments or having to make room in your budget, it's just there to absorb the unforeseen. And I think this is top of mind because for me, 2020, and for many of us, 2020 was the weirdest year ever. And years like 2020 are the reason why it makes sense to have an emergency fund.
1: You, you talked about making room in your budget. And w- when we talked about budgeting, we referenced the fact that every dollar in needs a place to go, needs a place to work. It's a net zero budget. There must be, that being said, there must be a line item in the budget then that is for the emergency fund. So I would assume that that comes after uh, all of your other expenses that are foreseen uh, and then leftover dollars after investments and things like that, that we'll talk about, they get allocated those leftover dollars towards your emergency fund. And that helps us put the dollars to work and have a zero sum budget.
0: Right, and, and, and you could build up the emergency fund in a number of ways. The one that you just alluded to is if you have money coming in, let's say you make five grand a month and your expenses are four grand a month, you might take 20% of that thousand or 200 bucks and put it in your savings account or put it in a money market account and have that earmarked for your, for your emergency fund. If you had a large inflow, and you allocated money to your 401k and your IRA and you had some funds that were left over, you might take half of the large pot of money and just say, this is my emergency fund. And a lot of people work off of their monthly expenses. So again, it's important to have a budget so you know what's going out of your bank account every month. And mental shortcuts that people use, they say you should have three months uh, of expenses as an emergency fund. I've heard six months. I've even heard a year so you know we're, we're going to get into some of the variables that would impact the need for a three-month or a six-month or a 12-month emergency fund
1: well we keep throwing out emergency funds so i i guess it's probably important that we define what an emergency is here on the front end of things nick what is your best definition of an emergency and as we were talking about our Personal monthly budgets. How is that different from just regular expenses or car maintenances that we uh, that we would be line item, lion iteming on our budget? So I think the
0: term emergency fund is a little is a little strong, right? Like not everything that comes up that's unexpected is an emergency. Like I just went to the Ford place to have my Fusion uh, my Fusion's oil changed. And they came back to me like they usually do with the laundry list of things that i needed to do and the bill was like 1500 bucks that was not the expectation it was not baked into my my regular monthly budget that is exactly the type of unaccepted or excuse me unexpected expense that an emergency fund quote unquote would be used to absorb so uh, while not a emergency per se, like if I if I was rolling down the street on my bike and I fell off and I broke my neck, and I had uh, an emergency room bill of fifteen thousand, that would be an emergency. The definition that I'm using is a little more broad. Anything that's unexpected, in other words, not in your regular monthly budget.
1: Right. It's uh, we've all heard it, Murphy's law. Right. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And so you need to hedge against knowing that that's the reality of life. Now, in our budget, we may have line items. We should rather have line items for uh, routine car maintenance, oil changes, things like that. But like what you're alluding to, Nick, the unforeseen will happen. The transmission will freeze. The motor will blow, whatever that is. And you need to be able to absorb uh, uh, those things. So you know, my definition of an emergency fund, what constitutes emergency is exactly, as I said earlier, the unforeseen, meaning a prom dress is not an emergency. Christmas is not an emergency. Christmas happens at the same time every year, nobody's changing it. So you need to be budgeting for those anticipated spendings. Emergencies is anything that you cannot tangibly express the expense on your budget, but know that somewhere something will happen that you'll need to access it. And so the same way that you budget for your routine maintenance on your vehicle that you know will happen, you need to budget for what you don't know, and that line item is called, for lack of a better term, the emergency fund. Keith, I'm gonna go off the rails
0: for a minute. What's what's the most you've had to spend on an emergency? Like, you don't have to tell me what it was, or maybe you want to, but what's
1: the most you've had to spend on something that you did
0: not foresee?
1: Well, that's a good question, Nick. There's been a lot of emergencies that have come up in all shapes and forms, but you specifically asked the most uh, that was unanticipated and it's actually relatively recent with the birth of my second child. When was born, actually ended up spending about 10 days in the NICU, and that's a whole another story that we can talk about some other time. Uh, the long and the short of it is everything's just fine and we got out of that okay. It was a scary experience, but uh, it was also a financially scary experience as we racked up over a few hundred thousand dollars in uh, in medical bills. And so uh, needless to say, there were some dollars that had to come up and we had to hit, uh, obviously, our, our max deductibles across, uh, across the board there on our insurance. But the, the biggest part of that was actually two ambulance trips to the NICU from the hospital in which he was born that insurance did not cover at about $2,500 a pop. Doesn't even work towards a deductible and and both mother and child had to be transported and they had to take uh, uh, separate ambulances on the way. So that was about a $5,000 nut on top of the whole rest of the experience. And so, so that one constitutes what I think is a true emergency as they're riding in the back of an ambulance. Nick, I'm going to ask you the same question. Well, one,
0: that's some scary stuff and I'm glad everyone turned out to be okay. I I did not know that. uh, And I I can't imagine what you were going through or your, your wife was going through during that whole thing. Same question to me. It was, it's a variation on a much smaller scale than what Keith just said. I've got a, I've got three kids, but I have a 20-month-year-old son. And when he was born, his, for lack of a better term, man unit was a little crooked. So it actually, one, I found out it's, it's pretty common for that to happen to boys. Two, it would require a surgery uh, after he was a year old because they can take some medication. They're a little more stable and older. So he went under for like six hours and we got a bill that was just shy of 10 grand and i and i had no clue what this would cost uh, but the insurance covered part of it and we were saddled with the deductible and some out-of-pocket out-of-pocket expenses so 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 often the emergencies are unavoidable healthcare events where you know you have a loved one that falls ill or something bad happens and you we can talk about the healthcare system in this country. I think it leaves a lot to be desired, but anytime you step foot in an emergency room or take an ambulance ride, like he says, or, or have a surgery or have something that goes beyond coverage of your insurance, you better be ready to write a check.
1: And what we're talking about there, Nick, it's, it's interesting that we both had similar examples. And I too hope that uh, everything is good with your boy now. And he's on the straight and narrow, pardon my pun there, <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's along the same line there. Emergencies in our situations are actually like health emergencies. But again, to kind of wrap it back up, uh, emergencies can come in any form. All of a sudden your vehicle doesn't work and you can't get to work. Uh, You better be able to figure out how to do that. And and the whole idea behind this fund is to not have to dip into your credit cards or go into debt when something like this happens. So for those of... uh, For those listening that are maybe asking, okay, I understand it's important to have some dollars for when the unforeseen happens, but it's cool because I've got uh, a bunch of money in the stock market and in my cryptocurrencies. And, and, you know, I like to, I like to see my money making money. Why is it important to have an emergency fund separate from say, illiquid assets or investments that you have elsewhere?
0: That's a good question and there's a few things to unpack there. So one, if you're investing in a 401k or an IRA or even a a taxable account that's invested and when I say invested I mean invested in appreciating assets like stocks or real estate. You know, we can assume that those are long term especially if they're in IRAs or 401ks. Like those are earmarked for a different purpose. Those are earmarked for when you retire. And if you're under 59 and a half taking those funds out of retirement vehicles is going to be extremely expensive, both from a tax standpoint, and you're going to get hit with a penalty. So so when we say, yeah, we have long-term investments, we're kind of excluding those from the emergency fund just because that's not what they're for, and you're going to get hit twice with the penalty and a, and a tax hit. For the investments that are in... A taxable account so a non IRA account or a non 401k account but still invested in stocks or longer-term assets if, if they've been invested for any period of time a year three years or five years you can assume given the long-term trend of the stock market is up that there is going to be a tax consequence or a capital gain consequence if you sold those assets we would like to avoid that as well right it's not efficient to have to sell a long-term asset like a stock, pay capital gains, to fund an emergency. You know, it's not the worst sin, but it would be much better to have a pot of money in your bank account or even a a cash proxy, as I call it. So we all know that interest rates are low. You can't really generate any income or yield with a traditional checking or savings account. So so one thing that Keith and I were talking about off-air was something that I personally do, which... If I have a pot of money that's earmarked for a short-term goal or just a rainy day, I will actually invest that, quote-unquote, and I use that term very loosely, in a short-term bond exchange-traded fund, like a short-term muni, a short-term corporate bond fund, even a short-term treasury fund to generate some yield or some income, and that's still very liquid. So I call that a cash proxy because it's very liquid. I can go to my online brokerage hit sell and the cash will be in my bank account in three or four days. So that's just a little spin on a traditional emergency fund.
1: Yeah, that's that's all exactly right. And I think too, if we really drill down into it, it's about habits and decision-making, right? So much of personal finance, so much of finance generally is behavior. And there's this thing in finance called the behavioral bias, right? So in this journey that we're taking to be financially independent and strong, um, we still have this behavioral bias inside of us that we need to be cognitive cognitive of and and be aware of in our decision making. And so aside from the the, the fees and taxable events and things like that of pulling investments out, is this potential behavioral bias, bias too that would come in that would be Oh, man, the market is actually down. I was up more last month. I don't want to pull these funds out now. I want the market to get back where it was. Therefore, I'm just going to throw this expense on my American Express or take out a personal loan, which is kind of contradictory to the financial independence that we're talking about, right? I've said this before. The worst time to borrow or to take on more debt is when you need money.
0: Yeah, and and there's this debate, and I'm sure Eric would have a different opinion on this, but there's various schools of thought whether you should start to build an emergency fund and make that a priority, or if you have debt, should you use the the funds that you would use on the emergency fund and fully pay off your debt? And I don't think it's one or the other. I think you can do both. Uh, It's good to make progress on multiple fronts. So if you have some high-interest debt that's, let's say, it's, it's 24% on a credit card. It would be foolish, especially in a zero-rate environment, to ignore that and focus exclusively on building an emergency fund. Like paying 24% interest on a credit card is an emergency, in my opinion. So you could allocate, let's say, 80% of the funds towards paying off your high-interest debt, and then sock away 20% of those funds and make progress of your goal on, on building an emergency fund. So so nothing is, I mean, we're not dealing in absolutes here. It's, it's perf, perfectly fine to make progress on emergency fund and paying off the high interest debt.
1: Right, so you have to be acutely aware of how strong and steadfast you are in your goals, right? So obviously the 24% interest is really bad debt, especially when compared to a four or 5% interest, personal loan, let's say. But you have to be able to know too that You'll continue to make the payments uh, even over and above to get rid of, you know, all debt, even at four or 5% uh, is eating away at your potential to earn money. So, so definitely tackle the high debt, high interest rate first, uh, but be aware that you need to continue to, to look at the debt that you have and, and pay off what you've got while also saving for an emergency fund. We understand now what an emergency fund is what an emergency constitutes as. So let's talk about how much money. How much money do we need to be saving and what does that look like? So, so a, a better way to ask this, what is a fully funded emergency fund? This is a golden
0: question and I would say it depends on what you do for a living. It not only depends on what you do for a living, but also if you're married, what your spouse does for a living. And let me give you an example. If I work for the government, let's say I'm a union employee, I ha- I've had the same job for 30 years, I get a 2% raise every year, my job is very stable, I-, I would argue your emergency fund could be smaller. On the flip side, if you're a real estate agent and you work in a boomer bus city, let's say you're a real estate agent in Vegas, your emergency fund, since your income is volatile, From year to year or even month to month i would argue your your emergency fund needs to be larger if you are the single breadwinner in your home and you have kids and have a spouse i would argue your emergency fund needs to be larger if your spouse works and makes a lot of money and has a stable job and you work as well you can make the case that your emergency fund could be smaller so there's no absolutes again i've heard three months six months 12 months but the scenarios that I've just outlined are a good mental shortcut to go by. The more volatile your employment income, the larger the emergency fund, the more stable your employment income, the smaller the emergency fund.
1: Well said. We can gauge the size of the emergency fund, not in dollars, but rather in a cash burn, right? So what does it take for you to survive for three months, six months, nine months, whatever the length is, based on what Nick was talking about, the riskiness of your situation and go from there. Now, you should know exactly what it takes to live for three months or six months or nine months, etc., because you've built your budget and are updating it on a monthly uh, reoccurrence. So you take your monthly budget, you know what your inflow is, you know what your outflow and expenses is, and then you multiply that over the amount of time in which you need to build the emergency fund. Now. Uh, No emergency fund is not a good option, but not having a cap on your emergency fund, I would argue um, is not nearly as bad, but also not necessarily the best case scenario either, because at some point, uh, you want those monies working for you somewhere else. And so finding that sweet spot, dependent upon your riskiness, as Nick was talking about, will be important. For most people, Uh, Nick, you can jump in if if you got a different opinion on this, but I would say for most people, uh, the the golden number is six months of emergency insurance, right? Six months of cash burn covering your expenses. For some, that may be three. Again, as Nick was saying, if it's a dual income household, uh, but for some, it may be nine. If you are single, you own a home, uh, you have certain expenses and car loans, as most of us do, and you you work a commissioned job and you're not sure uh, how secure that job is and you're a single, uh, therefore you're a single earner. And so if you were to lose that job, it could be catastrophic and you could be a 30, 32-year-old uh, moving back in with your parents.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't disagree with the six months. I, I think that's a fine shortcut. And I will add, if, if you don't trust yourself Like, I keep all of my money that goes to pay my monthly expenses in my checking account. My savings account, I can see just under my checking account on my online banking portal. I keep all of the quarterly tax payments that I have to make in that account. Everything else, including my emergency fund, I sweep out of sight and out of mind in an online brokerage. Like, I don't even want to see it. One, I use like mental warfare on myself. I like to feel poor because I think it makes me work harder. That's probably not true, but that's the game that I play in my head. But, it, but the, the, the moral of the story is, I'm not saying that you do that, but if you do a good job of building your emergency fund, but you're a spender, you have the tendency to spend, and you can get online and see that emergency fund, that might lead to some bad outcomes. So if, if you're a spender and you don't want to see it because you'll be tempted, sweep it somewhere else. You can keep it in cash. You could buy a short-term bond fund. All of that is still liquid. And if you connect your bank and your online broker, you can sweep it back into your bank account if you need it. So these are the little games that we play that make good habits easier to accomplish and making bad habits
1: harder to accomplish. Here at Proper Sense, we talk a lot about all things personal finance, including paying off debt, saving for retirement, investing, obviously today, emergency funds. So Nick, my question to you, for everyone listening, where would you say that saving for an emergency fund falls within the journey of financial freedom, is it before paying off debt? Does that depend on the debt? Is it after, is it a smaller fund to get you going and then focusing on high interest debt and then fully funding a fund? Or is it after you're fully maxing out your IRAs and your 401ks? Is it before that? Is it in tandem? Uh, Talk to us a little bit about the process from a macro level, taking all things personal finance and saving for this emergency fund.
0: This is my personal opinion. It might differ from Eric's. It might differ from yours. High interest debt, and what I would classify as high interest debt, would be anything over 15%, which is in the wheelhouse of many credit cards. I would say pay that off first. Make that a priority. Next would be the emergency fund. And I'm not saying that on day one you need to have six months saved, but start to make progress. Build... A line item in your budget, emergency fund, count it as an expense if you need to, but have something that allocates money on a monthly basis into that emergency fund after you've paid off the high interest debt. And then you can, once you build that, you can just divert those savings into your 401k and your IRA. Keep in mind, anything that you save in a retirement account, that's pretty hard and restrictive and expensive to get back out. So know that count anything that goes into those longer-term retirement accounts is basically gone for the next 30 years. Let's say it's long-term money. You're not going to get it back. So again, just to paraphrase, the, the high-interest debt, the emergency fund, anything after that, you can put towards saving or any other goal, like buying a house. But but certainly, it just doesn't feel good. Again, in a zero percent world, to pay 24 percent to a
1: financial institution, that's just that's just robbery. Just a. To- further push on that. I would say too that it's important to understand yourself. We can't give the exact answer for how and when you should be funding your emergency fund. You need to look into your own mind and understand your propensities and how you handle your money to determine what's best. And so uh, it might be sort of a hybrid approach where you save um, a couple thousand bucks, you put it under the mattress, so to speak, um, just in case of an emergency, so it doesn't derail other progress that maybe you're focusing on. Maybe you've got six credit cards all maxed out and you're finally mature enough to look at those and realize that you've got to start tackling those and you need the wins of paying down your credit cards to keep the momentum going. Well, that's great, but let's say that you're a little bit further in your financial journey. You're a little more financially prudent and paying attention to things. And I think that this is what Nick's alluding to, is of course you wanna tackle the high interest, Well, maybe leaving some of the lower interest stuff alone, while you're putting some money aside for a rainy day, while at the exact same time um, padding your 401Ks, making sure you're maxing out on any employee matches in that regard, maxing out your IRAs and saving for retirement, sort of doing them all in tandem, moving the whole cart forward together is also a financially uh, prudent decision to be made, I just think it's a personal matter that we've got to kind of figure out what works best for us. But uh, understanding, coming back to just the emergency fund, is it's going to rain. And so uh, when it does, you need your umbrella. And that's exactly what we're talking about uh, today with these emergency funds. So Nick, good. We've saved an emergency fund. We understand the importance of it. It's liquid. Uh, It's separate from our investments. Uh, we've got a plan, we're sticking to it, and then boom, the ambulance bill comes, and you've got to dip into that. Now, thank goodness you've done it, you're financially prudent enough to have it set aside, you're not taking out debt, Uh, it's not going to creditors because you can't pay it, but you just spent a large chunk, all of it, some of it, of your emergency fund. What do we do now to replenish it? Do we stop our focus on everything else, or as we were just talking about, it's just sort of a hybrid approach depending on your situation.
0: I think you move it back up towards the top of your financial goals and you get it back to where it was. And that is likely a process for most people. So you just put it back in the budget as a line item and say every month I'm going to put X amount back into my, into my emergency fund until I'm back to my three month or six months of expenses or 12 months of expenses based on your own household need or budget.
1: And I think at that point, having dipped into it and feeling the security of having it, it'll hurt a little bit, having to dip into all that hard work and savings, but at the same time, it might reignite that fire, understanding that it does rain sometimes, and so being prepared is, is the best option. And so I would uh, agree with you, Nick, that it's time to refocus on replenishing that um, and, and hopefully uh, kick in an emergency further down the road. There you go, that, that about wraps things up on emergency funds. So financial catastrophe or simple inconvenience, that depends on your emergency fund. So start saving one now. Join us on the next Proper Sense podcast. And as always, check us out at propersense.com.